This episode is part of a project funded by the Northumberland United Way to help create resources for those experiencing grief in the COVID pandemic. The team at Grief Stories is grateful for the support from Northumberland United Way. Grief Stories is not a crisis resource. Please seek support from a qualified professional in your area to meet your unique emotional and medical needs. listening to the Grief Stories podcast. I'm your host, Maureen Pollard, a social worker with an interest in helping people find hope and healing when someone they love has died. In each episode, you'll hear a conversation with a guest sharing their story and insights about what can help when you're adapting to loss. At Grief Stories, we're helping grief make sense one story at a time. Today's guest is Meg Knowles, sharing the story of losing her mom during the pandemic and hosting a virtual funeral. So welcome to the Grief Stories podcast, Meg. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me, Maureen. We're here today to talk about the loss of your mom. You lost her in July 2020, and that was in the near the beginning of the pandemic, a few months in. And that was, um, you know, a challenging time made more challenging because of the, the situation with the pandemic. So I'm going to invite you just to share your story of the experience with your mom, and and uh, we'll talk a bit about how the pandemic has impacted your grief and loss. Sure. So um, in the spring, March of 2020, um, my mother had been um, a very healthy 93-year-old um, who was quite active in her community. She um, belonged to a church where she was very active. She played bridge frequently and um, belonged to several different clubs. She had a, a pretty... Um, busy social life. She was, she was out of her house two or three times a day. And once the pandemic began, of course, you know, she retreated into her apartment alone and um, with only a couple of ladies on her hall um, who she was interacting with at all. And she was fine for a little while. She was, you know, doing crossword puzzles and reading books. And she seemed very cheerful when I would call her and I was calling her like every day or two. And then about a month in, she started to sound more like kind of ir irritable and frustrated and kind of upset. And she wasn't telling me that she was having trouble, but I learned subsequently that she had started to have trouble with her mobility and was falling down while walking her dog. She mentioned to me that her neighbor was walking her dog in the mornings. And then a bit later that her neighbor was um, walking the dog all the time. Um, and, you know, I was like, well, are you having problems? And she's like, well, you know, they're just being nice and it's snowy and, you know, like it was still, you know, the weather was tough and, you know, she wasn't sure that she was, was going to be stable. So, you know, it, it sort of increased as time went on, it became clear that she was expressing that, you know, first of all, she was very lonely and she didn't want to do video phone calls. We tried it. She was had struggled with the technology. And she started calling me because she was having trouble with her email, which had happened in the past. But things that she'd known how to do, she suddenly didn't seem to have a handle on anymore. And she was getting lost in her email frequently and um, was, you know, just calling for more help with things like that. And had I been able to cross the border, I would have been up there 
you know, probably by, well, I certainly would have been there in March and maybe in early April and um, at the latest. And I would go to see her normally, you know, every three weeks or once a month during the school semester. Um, but I couldn't get there. So um, it was very frustrating um, because she was declining and she went to the hospital once or twice where she was having, um, she had a, she had a rapid heartbeat and took medication for that. And she was having some trouble with feeling like she was um, having chest pain or something like that. And she would go to the hospital and they would send her home. And she was seeing her doctor and, you know, a video call or something like that. Or maybe she went and saw her in person. I don't know. Anyway, it, it was really clear she wasn't doing well at all. And I desperately wanted to get up there. I felt that she needed in-home care. Um, she um, didn't seem to feel like uh, confident about cooking and, you know, told me she'd left her, you know, left things burning on the stove and forgotten them a couple of times. And I was getting really very worried about her by the time it was May and was trying to figure out how to get over the border. So she's in Coburg, Ontario, and you're in Buffalo, and you can't get to her because you can't cross the border because the pandemic restrictions have prevented any travel. So you you couldn't do your normal visits, never mind a visit, because now you're getting worried about her. And the more that she's isolated, the more her decline is is really becoming apparent. And that's all pandemic related. And it seems like it just coincided and that the pandemic restrictions just really impacted her, the isolation. And then your it increased your concern and distress maybe because you couldn't get here to help her. Yeah. And it was, it was, it was, you know, she's um, a very proud person. She didn't ever talk about it when she was sick. Um, so when it was very difficult for me to convince her to say, give me her doctor's phone number, give me permission to talk to her doctor, because I would ask her, what did the doctor say? And she'd say, oh, I don't remember. I can't, I can't, I can't recall what she, you know, she just would get frustrated. And um, so all of that, there was sort of that difficulty layered onto it. And I felt like I couldn't actually find out what was going on with her. Um, and the, um, the not being able to cross over became more um, urgent for me the moment um, the college semester ended, I teach college, and starting in the beginning of May, I could have just gone up there and stayed with her, and I couldn't. And I wasn't able to go until um, it was almost the middle of June. It was like June 13th or something that I was able to cross the border, that they finally allowed um, people who had um, either a parental role or a guardianship role, and I used my, I had a medical health care proxy for her, and I used that to make my case to cross the border. And, um, but then I couldn't go directly to her house. Um, and at that point, the day that I crossed the border, she was going back over to the hospital. Um, but I had to go into a quarantine location, which I could do fortunately in Coburg. Uh, I think there was a period where they forced you to um, quarantine near the, in, in Erie, Pennsylvania, or Erie, sorry, Erie, um, Ontario, uh, Fort Erie, Ontario. But, um, I was allowed to go all the way up to Coburg. I had to show that I had rented a, an Airbnb um, and I got a place like, you know, six or eight blocks from her house and moved in there the day that I arrived. And I was able to, on that day, as she was leaving for the hospital, I arrived in my car and was able to wave at her from like, a, I would say a distance of about half a block away because I just wanted to see her. 
Um, and I was, you know, I knew it was going to be two weeks till I got out of quarantine. So then this very long, she was checked into the hospital for the first time at that point. And um, I was in quarantine and the difficulty then became, I'm trying to communicate with doctors at the hospital who were new to her. Um, the hospital doctor is not her family doctor and doesn't know that she was in great shape a month before they saw an elderly lady who was having trouble walking and wasn't functioning well. And I think didn't take her maybe as her illness as seriously as they might have otherwise. I don't know, but I had trouble getting in touch with them because they're very busy. They were overwhelmed at the hospital. Um, they, you know, things were, as I learned later, you know, they were only using one wing. They were blocked off. They didn't have as many employees. They had laid off, you know, or sent away all the people who did all the support work at the hospital. So you couldn't have a, you couldn't have a FaceTime call. That could be arranged with a two-week wait delay. So I set one up right away for my family to have a FaceTime call with her, which was set for like July 4th, um, although she died on July 2nd. So um, that would have been too late because they because it was going to take that long to get that to happen. There was no um, there was no religious person at the hospital who could meet with her, or talk to her, or even call her on the telephone. I had to arrange myself for the minister at her church um, to call her um, so that she could have some you know, comfort of that kind. So it was very difficult. And I could talk to her on the phone for the first 10 days. And then it was still a couple of days till I got out of quarantine, but she stopped being able to speak because her, her throat, she'd lost her voice over time and that she'd been having trouble with it for a couple of years, getting softer and softer. But as she got sicker in the hospital, she lost her voice. And um, so I would call the nurses and they a couple of times would hold the phone up to her ear and I could talk to her and they would be like, oh, she's trying to indicate something. You know, it was terrible. We just <laughs> and so I couldn't find out from her how she was doing. Um, I could just tell that it was getting worse. And I had a lot of trouble communicating with the hospital. I could talk to them maybe once a day or maybe once every two days, depending on how often they called me back. So I would call them like three or four times in the day and I eventually would get a phone call back from someone. Sometimes it was the doctor on duty and sometimes it was a nurse because the doctor was too busy. And they switched the doctors three different times. So there was a different head doctor as the weeks changed. So my whole family was frantic. You know, like people are calling me, I'm sitting in this empty apartment, um, getting food delivered from a grocery in Coburg. And some of my mom's friends, you know, people in Canada were so kind. They came over and brought me things. They brought my mother's dog over who stayed with me. You know, they, they left care packages for me at the door, even though we couldn't, you know, interact. And because um, that quarantine, they're calling you and making sure and, you know, checking okay. on you all the time. So finally, the day came when I got out of the quarantine and I went straight over to the hospital. I drove directly from the apartment to the hospital. And they let me into the hospital. And I didn't really know it, but I, the reason they were allowing me into the hospital at that point is because she was at the end of life stage. But nobody said that to me directly. She was in a wing that doesn't normally deal with people at the end of their lives. She was in a regular hospital wing where there were people with other ailments um, around her. She had had a roommate for a little while, then the roommate moved on. And so by the time I got there, she was alone in the room. 
And so I was able to see her the afternoon that I got out of quarantine. And she was awake and I was able to talk to her. She couldn't say much out loud, but she could kind of whisper. And I was able to um, connect my brother and my sister with her on FaceTime from on that day. And um, was very glad that I did because the next day she died. And when I went back the next day, she wasn't conscious anymore. And um, finally I saw a doctor in person that day and the doctor came in and I said that I thought she seemed to be in a lot of discomfort. Even though she wasn't conscious, she was like grasping, grasping like she was trying to hold, grab something. And I thought maybe she was, they said, you know, she might've felt like she was having trouble breathing and was subconsciously trying to like surface or something. And um, they they did then give her some, I don't know what, morphine or something, and she calmed down. And um, But within a few hours, she did die. And I wasn't there when she died. I was I had to go back and take care of the dog. And they called me from the hospital and said, you know, your mom has passed. At that point, I called one of my mother's friends who'd said, call me if things go bad. And I called her and said, you know, Suzanne, my mom just died. And she came and picked me up despite the quarantine um, and took me over to the hospital and um, went up with me and we talked to the doctors and, you know, and then she helped me arrange, make funeral arrangements, um, you know, get a funeral home and stuff like that, um, that day. Um, so it was, I felt lucky that there was somebody there, you know, that my mom had so many good friends, that there was somebody who was willing to come and help me because, it was so hard to be like alone and to have no, you know, family members who rushed in, you know, my brother, and my sister were on the telephone, you know, but. Well, if it hadn't been for the pandemic, they might've been able to be there with you during the process. You would have been able to be in to see your mom the, the whole time along. If you didn't have to quarantine, if the hospital wasn't keeping visitors out, if, if, if. You know, what if I could have gone up to her house a month before and taken care of her? Would that have helped her be in a better place? You know, what if we'd been out regularly, you know, taking little walks and, you know, doing things or I could more quickly, I was trying to arrange home health care and it was like, she had had like one interview, you know, it was, it was, everything was delayed, you know, like everything was very slow and um, frustrating and frustrating for her, but, you know, and upsetting. You know, because you just feel like you can't control the situation. And even though, you know, you're there to advocate, you don't have anybody to advocate to. Mm-hmm. And some of that is the differences between the Canadian healthcare system and the experiences you have in a small town hospital, as opposed to some of the differences you might know of in your American system and, and, and the hospitals you're familiar with working with. And so, so you had in addition to all these other issues, you had the challenge of trying to understand our system and what was happening in our hospital and why it was happening that way. And, you know, at the best of times, there can be challenges and communications with doctors and nurses and medical staff because of shift changes and lots of things that happen. But it was exacerbated by the conditions the hospital was experiencing under the pandemic. You know, from the start of your mom's story to the end of your mom's story in that year of 2020, the pandemic really took a toll on her and then it took a toll on you as you lost her and were grieving. I felt, I think I felt lucky at the time 
because I knew people in the States whose family had died, who were not able to see them at all, who never saw them. They died alone. And I felt so lucky that I was able to be in the room with her and to hold her hand. And I was able to, you know, my mom loved um, music and she had been an opera singer when she was young. And she was always very engaged with the Friends of Music in Port Hope near where she lived. And um, we would go to, there was something we did together. We'd go to the, the opera, the Met Opera, and you know, that they did on the um, film. And so I was able to bring in a radio from her house and hook it up and put on the classical music station and left it playing after I went to, left visiting her. And I could see that even when she was not conscious, she was responding to that and that that music, and I've heard that uh, people who are near death, um, the last thing that goes is their ability to hear things. And that, so I thought maybe that would be, I think, I hope that that was of some comfort to her. Mm-hmm. At least it felt like one thing I could do, you know? Mm-hmm. In a in a difficult situation with so many things out of control, the one thing you could do is bring some music that you know she would love. And the one thing that you had was a connection with her people, her friends, the people who were well connected to her. And that was a support to you. And I mean, the ability to at least have that last video call with your siblings and her. Thank goodness for that, because you have these small blessings in the middle of this terrible, difficult time. Yeah, it made a huge, it made a really big difference to just be able to know that, you know, I felt like, I felt like she was failing while I was in that quarantine as she was. And I think she may have waited, you know, I kept saying, I'm going to be there on whatever day of the week it was. And, um, and I got there and it was July 1st and my, my older sister's birthday is July 1st. And the whole day I just kept thinking, please don't let her die today. Let her live one more day so that my sister does not have to live the rest of her life knowing that that's the anniversary of, of her death. But, yeah. but the, I will say that the community in Coburg, my mother's friends, and she had many of them, um, were so kind to me. And I had her friends were phoning me up both before and after she died to offer help and to, you know, and people did come and, you know, they helped me take care of her clothing and, and figure out who I could donate that to. And, you know, how am I going to get rid of, you know, this and that. And, and what it turned out was, is I had to stay in Canada to completely dissolve my mother's whole life because she was in a, um, a sublet situation where she had one month left on a lease before it would have been renewed. And I had to get her stuff out of the apartment by August 1st. So I knew that I had a, a short amount of time. I would not be able to get back into Canada if I left. And so I had to by myself make every arrangement. And that was just so daunting. And without a couple of my mother's neighbors and friends who just helped me on a daily basis, you know, bringing meals and, you know, offering advice and connecting me with the places where you can give stuff or who would, we had to do a, um, an auction and, um, you know, there was like an online affair to get rid of some of her furniture. I had to get a moving truck. So many things I had to arrange and I had to do that by myself. And about, you know, three or four days into it, I called my brother and sister and I said, you know, I want to have a funeral. And they were like, don't be ridiculous. Nobody's having funerals. We'll just tell people that we'll, there will be a service, you know, when this is over next, you know, next year or whatever. And at that point, of course, we didn't know how long it was going to go on. And, um, but I said, no, I really want to have something now. And I think we can do something 
um, virtually because I had been teaching virtually for an entire semester at that point. And I teach in media production. Um, so I knew how to set things up. And I said, look, let's just, I've got a big Zoom account. I'll make it bigger so that we can have as many people as we want. We can have it last as long as we want. I got the minister of her church to cooperate. He did a, he did it from, he was in, in the church, um, you know, um, taping from there. Um, I was in my mother's apartment. My sister was in her home in Texas and my brother and his family were in their home in Michigan. And we got to got, got a, I sent a ton of photos to one of my friends in Buffalo who made a video set to music that was important to her, just of the, the photos that started out the service. And then we had, we had different people do readings. We had, we had music played. There was a hymn, you know, like that was, I consulted with my mother's church about what the readings should be. You know, we did everything to make a service that I think would have been meaningful to my mom's different family and friends. And we had more than 200 people attended that Zoom service, um, which was just really gratifying. And, and it was, and it was important to me. I felt like I needed to have that gathering that, you know, people coming in and supporting and just to feel that love, you know, was really important in that moment for me. And, and I was, my brother and sister were great. They acquiesced. My sister did a really beautiful eulogy. You know, my brother participated with a reading and, and we, and we had relatives come and attend this Zoom thing. They were in California, they were in Washington state, they were in Colorado, they were in Pennsylvania, New Jersey. We had people from just all over the place, plus lots of her friends from Canada and many of her friends who um, she'd worked, people she'd worked with in Buffalo and um, elsewhere during her long career in arts administration. Um, so some of her oldest friends were there that I hadn't seen since you know my childhood. <laughs> And the great part was when the service was over, they all stayed on and one by one chatted with us. So I felt like this was as satisfying a funeral and send off as I could have hoped. You know, I got to see my mom's friends and talk to them and our relatives were there. Everybody, you know, people said to me, I learned stuff about your mother I never knew. I knew her in one way, but I didn't know these other things about her. And it was a great tribute to her um, life. And, and it gave us like a nice, a nice way to gather, even though it was only virtual, it felt like so much more. And I think that we, you know, when we think about that, how wonderful that you had those talents and skills and after teaching online for a semester in the particular topic that you teach in, that you had the ability and the knowledge about who could do what and how you could pull something like that together. I think, you know, in 2022, there will be more people who have that capability than there might've been in 2020. I hope so. I mean, I was lucky because, you know, like I was in Kira was in Canada. I'm like, Oh, I don't have the cable that I need to do the video. My sister's, my sister's boyfriend is a, you know, worked at IBM and is a technology guy, big audio guys in a lot of bands. He did the, he backed up the whole, Zoom call, doing all the technology in the background for me. I was able to call on some of my colleagues at um, Buffalo State College to help produce parts of the um, parts of the service that were pre-recorded, so that we could pop in the pre-recorded segments as we went along with some of the live 
things that we were able to do. So it made it like feel like a real service, you know, instead of, you know, and I know that, you know, people have been doing Zoom, Zoom funerals. But at that point, I really had only heard about, you know, oh, it's awful. Like people are just sort of all looking at each other and don't know what to say. And so I felt like, let's get some structure. <laughs> yeah. Let's well, and it sounds like you did such a beautiful job with it in terms of having some flow, some structure, some, lead, you know, the ability to lead the people who gathered by Zoom, you had the ability to lead them through the process. Sometimes, you know, I've been to, I've been to Zoom funerals, I've been to Zoom baby showers and things like that. And it's hard because it's not like um, in person where you can just sort of gather and chat here and there with people because whoever's talking takes the stage and everybody else has no choice but to listen. <laughs> and if more people are talking at once, then you have. And so, you know, all these pitfalls of technology that also still allow us to be connected, you were able to overcome because of your skill and knowledge and the people that you were able to gather to support you. And, and, you know, it sounds like you had people who may not have been able to attend an in-person funeral. You had such a really vast reach because it was by technology. Yeah, exactly. And, and I also was able to record it. And so then I was able to share it with other people who didn't find out till later, or for some reason couldn't be there on that day. Um, so I've been, so I've shared the the recording with um, a number of, of my mom's friends and, and relations who asked for it later on. So that that's also been kind of nice. And I've actually had it myself and have rewatched it. <laughs> so, you know, I well, was at a stage where I just, I did all went by in a blur. And I, you know, I knew that my sister had spoken really meaningfully and it was really nice to be able to go back and really listen to what she said again um, and reflect on it a few months later. You know, when you get to that point, you know, one of my friends said to me, you'll be dealing with this. It comes up for you, you know, like you had ebbs and flows, your grief experience. And it and it was true. Like, you know, I would felt fine for a little while and then I would have this really low period. And during one of those low periods, I went and rewatched that service and it just gave me a lot of sort of, you know, I don't know, courage to go on or, you know, just a way to connect back and feel that that same kind of like hug. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, all the love, all the love that was there for your mom and for you guys as a family and uh, and that really is able to come through. And I think, you know, what a unique opportunity and what a beautiful thing to be able to watch it again and absorb it when you're not in the immediacy of raw grief and the chaos of trying to dissolve an estate in a, with a, a timeline, like a one month timeline. Right. Like you. It, you know, we're not at our best after someone we love dies. Yeah. And so we often don't remember some of those things because they're all blurred together. And so you have this beautiful opportunity to revisit when you want to. So it just feels like um, there were a lot of hardships and challenges because of the pandemic and how it impacted your mom and your experience of losing her. Um, but there were also some real moments that were opportunities or bright spots in the midst of this kind of dreary, sad landscape where you had this opportunity for connection with other people and both, you know, in, in Coburg when you were wrapped around by her friends and also with the production of the funeral 
and that ability to connect with people. And so, you know, um, it seems like that's one of the things that has really kind of sustained you because that's really, you know, you tell that so eloquently, that part. Um, in terms of, you know, what's helping you with your grief, would you say that there's anything besides that sense of social connection that is giving you um, a sense of healing, a sense of movement and hope through your, your loss? Is there anything that feels like it's um, been a light in spite of the pandemic? I really, I will say that it, it's been people that have reached out to me and, you know, my mom had a neighbor who was, I, I think, really caring for her in the end, um, who then cared for me for the mm. month. And she and I have kept in contact, you know, emailing and and um, my mom had a small dog and um, her, um, she had a woman who babysat her dog regularly if my mother traveled. And that lady asked if she could keep the dog. And I gave the dog to her and I'm able to follow the dog on Facebook. <laughs> know that the dog is like in a very happy setting with lots of people and another pet and, you know, probably um, has a very happy ending, you know, sort of being able to be satisfied that those those loose ends in my mother's life were tied up in a way that would have been um, good for her has made me feel really good. I've been um, I've been supporting some of the organizations my mother supported just sort of in her memory. And that's something that's given me a lot of comfort in a funny way. You know, she was supporting the Coburg um, uh, Ecology Garden, which was near her home. And um, we donated a tree there and actually scattered some of my mother's ashes um, there um, when that tree was planted. And it was a chestnut tree, which is a tree that is my, a tree my mother was her favorite thing. And so that, you know, there's been ways that I've been able to sort of, I feel like make peace with the world for my mother or for me and, you know, make, make it feel like there was still ways that she's connected to the world. You know, it's really easy for, you know, when someone elderly dies that, you know, they've just gone away and, you know, it's like they were never there. And it's, and I really enjoy being able to feel like there's like a continuation of her, of her, of her presence in the impact that she had. She had a lot of impact on a number of arts communities and um, caring communities and religious communities. You know, there was a lot of people that were, that that um, she interacted with over the years and, and did a lot for. And so being able to sort of remain uh, tied to that, I think has been something that's been very comforting for me. Yes, I don't know. <laughs> well, and, and it kind of, you know, it goes along when we talk in grief, we talk about that idea of continuing bonds. And we talk about sort of um, adjusting to the absence of the person. And so part of what you've done is you've continued her energy in the world by supporting some of the things that she's done. Yeah, and, and my that, sister and I have been chatting every week, which we were not doing before. We're in very different parts of the country and see each other. I see my sister maybe twice a year, but I see my brother like maybe once every two years. And... But on every Sunday now, we've been exchanging, you know, greetings and and stories and, you know, keeping keeping better, closer touch with each other. And that's been something that I think my mom would really like to know. <laughs> it's almost like it's a, le a legacy of hers that you're closer now, that you're yeah. more connected. 
Um, and and that keeps her love alive too, because it's for her love that you've come back together in, in a way that you weren't for a long time, maybe, you know? Yeah. I mean, we were always a caring family, but it just, we just were, we have busy lives and you're yeah. not constantly in, in contact, you know? It's so. true. It's true. We do, you know, we get busy and we have our, you know, twice a year visits or a couple of year visits, depending on the distance and the how much money it costs and all of those things in terms of timing. So it's the, it's allowed a shift and it's, and it's um, as, as, uh, as hard as it has been to lose her, there are some things about her that will carry on in the world yeah. um, in part because she has the three of you here and, uh, and her love for her love, you know, sounds like she had such a big love for a lot of people. Uh, and that's maybe what people, you know, she was caring and she brought a lot of light to the world and, and that drew people to her and that, that carries on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Beautiful. I'm so very sorry that you lost your mom in this way at this time and that there were so many challenges as a result. I actually did find, a, um, I found a, an old answering machine message that I had recorded I, just from like a few years ago. And somehow I got it from, you know, off my machine and I don't even remember doing it, but I found it while I was looking for photos of her. And it was this really lovely um, message from my mother that um, just, she left one time when I wasn't home saying that she loved me and thought I was a wonderful person. And, and, you know, like we put that into the, into the, um, it was, it came up in the service. And it's just so nice to have something like that makes me feel like I can hear her saying something to me, you know? Mm -hmm. It really brings home the value of audio, video recordings, um, photographs, right? It really brings home the value of those things. I can play it for you, I think. Saved message one. Hi, it's your loving mama. I was just thinking about you and thought I would call to say what a wonderful person I think you are and how lucky you are. And I wish you would have a really wonderful day today. I don't know if you could hear that, but I could hear that. That was delightful. How sweet. Yeah, she was that kind of person that would leave a message like that for you. <laughs> How sweet. Yeah. And shouldn't we all leave messages like that for the people we love? It does make you think about it taking that moment to say I love you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people know we care about them, but to receive a message like that and to have it, to always have it, that's beautiful. I'm so glad you have that. And I'm also, you know, I'm really glad for you that you have that connection with those people, the, the people that were part of your mom's circle, um, a closer a feeling of more closeness with your siblings, your brother and your sister, um, a sense of an ability to connect with those family and friends that were able to participate in the funeral because it was, um, a streamed funeral because of the pandemic, you know? So there've been some challenges, but there's also been some bright spots. And I'm, I am uh, I can really hear your gratitude as you tell those parts too. Yeah, I came out of it feeling like, you know, uh, maybe a renewed sense of warmth about the world in a way. You know? mm, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, really come in and um, support you, you know, in those ways. Yeah. Well, Thank you so much for sharing your story of your mom. And I think that your story is going to resonate with a lot of people 
who've experienced loss and grief in the last two years. This has been a difficult time to lose people and there never feels like there's a good time to lose someone we love. You know, there've been a lot of added complications. And I, I um, so appreciate that your story also shares some of the added opportunities that are possible for a different kind of connection, even during these difficult times. So thank you for sharing. Thanks for giving me a chance to talk it over. It's always uh, it's always good to talk about it one more time. Yeah. <laughs> well, they say that when we've had a difficult experience and we're processing it and trying to come to terms with it, make peace with it, so to speak, that we may need to tell that story 50 times in order to make some sense of it, make some peace. And so the opportunity to do that, you know, through the Grief Stories podcast or in our work, we hope that people find the sharing of the story as therapeutic as we hope that our audiences find it helpful. So, well, thanks for including me. Thank you for joining me. Take good care of yourself. Thank you for listening to the Grief Stories podcast. I'm your host, Maureen Pollard. Please remember that grief is universal, but every person's experience of grief is unique. While our interviews are intended to help listeners feel validation and reassurance, we realize that these stories may be different from your own. Please visit our website, griefstories.org, for more stories of hope and healing.